Welcome back to the Talking Points Summer Season Special. We hope you enjoy revisiting all of the gorgeous conversations with our Season 1 guests. Welcome to Talking Points, a ballet and dance podcast where we speak with some of the most extraordinary and famous dancers, artistic directors and choreographers. I'm your host, Claudia Lawson. Today I'm speaking with the magnificent Emma Watkins. Many of you will know her as the supremely talented Emma Wiggle. Emma grew up like many aspiring dancers, dreaming of becoming a ballerina. But her dreams took an unexpected turn after an injury as a teenager. And as you'll hear, her dreams changed direction and she embarked on a different journey, one that led her to university, to film editing, and to ultimately becoming the iconic Yellow Wiggle. In this wonderfully generous and personal interview, Emma talks about her years of ballet training in Sydney, how she auditioned to join the Wiggles, first as a dancer, and then being selected to become a Wiggle. But Emma also shares so much more, how she coped with endometriosis while being under intense pressure to be pregnant, the PhD she is studying, her passion for every child to learn Auslan, and what it was like to become the first female Wiggle. It's just so delightful to have you here with us. <laughs> oh, you're so welcome. Thanks for inviting me, particularly during this time of lockdown. Uh, you know, everything's possible. So I guess I wanted to go back to the beginning and ask you where your where your spark for dance came from. I originally was inspired by the Wiggles. And I know that sounds like a circular journey, but I grew up watching the Wiggles so much. And during that time in their very early incarnation, they had a huge Celtic music influence. And through friends of theirs, they involved many, many um, elements of Irish dancing into their music and into their videos. And my mum just said that I was apparently infatuated and just watched it all the time and wanted to jump around like the girls that were dancing on the video at the time and their curly hair and the beautiful costumes. And so my mum used to take my sister and I to their live concerts, whether that was at the community hall or uh, down the road at the shopping centre. Then in about 1997, my sister and I went to their live concert at the Seymour Centre in Sydney. And I have very vivid memories of that concert And I think it's been made more concrete because that concert was videoed and there is a few shots of my sister and I dancing in the audience as they cut away. I was probably about seven then, but before that, I went to start Irish dancing at the age of four. But the Irish dancing teacher that we went to, she thought that that was quite young and encouraged me to start ballet. So I started ballet first and then a year later I went back to her to start Irish dancing at the Riley School of Irish Dancing in Baronia Park. Wow. So you train in ballet and in Irish dancing. Yeah, and loved my ballet teacher, Miss Trudy Collette, who is an amazing teacher. And then she encouraged me to continue my ballet at the McDonald College when I was moving to high school. And I continued there for a little bit. I was a very enthusiastic student, loved school, loved being able to do ballet every single day for two hours during school time. I thought that was magical. And the first day back of term two in year eight, I wanted to you know, do my best and try really hard and try to do 
a double turn in the air, like a sisone turn, and landed wrong on the outside of my ankle and snapped my ligament on the outside. And I was devastated. (laughs) And uh, the ballet stream were trying to figure out how I would remain a part of the ballet family there at the school and my ankle just wasn't recovering and they knew at that time, you know, being a particularly uh, enthusiastic RED student for the last 14 years, (laughs) um, you know, it was a tragedy uh, and that I wouldn't be able to do point. So I was moved to the dance stream to try something that was less uh, crazy on my ankle and basically fell in love with commercial dance and never looked back. An injury at those ages, like 13, 14 and, say, 15, 16, like they're so catastrophic those years mm-hmm. in terms it of, It meant know, a lot. Yeah. yeah. Was it huge at the time? Uh, it was just I was so upset and I was quite depressed and was removed from performing arts at the college so that I wasn't going to be more upset. It was a good move on the college's behalf because I think now looking back I would have been pretty upset continuing to go to the dance class but sit and watch I'd had enough of that pretty much when they moved me to the prep and kindergarten class and I would actually read stories to the kindergarten children and would do that instead of performing arts and I I think that was probably very um, valuable now when I think (laughs) back. Are you continuing with school and then now hoping to work towards a career as a commercial dancer? Is that where sort of the headspace got to? Well I ended up continuing my training at full-time dance at 85 International after going to film school. So I kind of did it the wrong way around. I tried to teach myself how to use editing software for video and um, fell in love with Final Cut Pro and basically just started editing dance films, which helped me enter the kind of film world I received a scholarship to Sydney Film School and my parents were like, honestly, you'll never have another opportunity like that. So I went to film school after performing art school, which was a shock to everybody. And I think um, my dance teachers at that time were quite upset that I wasn't dancing. So interesting. Oh, it's so weird. My whole injury at that point was actually prolific in changing my headspace to try and think about what else was I going to do because my life was dance. I was all about being the swan. (laughs) I honestly thought, yeah, RAD was everything to me, my ballet exams, you know, how I was wearing my hair in a bun. Like I was just obsessed with ballet. All my weekends were competitions and the Steadfords. And so by the time that I wasn't able to dance at that crucial age, 16, 17, my love for dance turned into dance on screen and went to film school and had an amazing time that was very different to everything that I'd known. And then came back and joined most of my friends at full time the year later. So I was a little bit older than my full time dance colleagues, but I actually really enjoyed it. I was a bit more of the motherly figure in that year and really lapped it up, just loved it. I still had a lot of problems with my back at the time, but then continued after that and went to university um, at UTS to do media arts and production and continued that for a little bit until my tutor was like, I think you should do the master's. And so joined the master's at UTS whilst auditioning. And I auditioned for everything, Wicked, Cats, Sound of Music, Fame. Like I just didn't get anything. And I was auditioning for so many different types of gigs. I would still be 
um, fortunate enough to do um, smaller dance gigs and I did lots of backup dancing, commercial dance for Jessica Malboy and Marsha Hines and John did Paul you Young. Really? And that was actually amazing. And I, I thought, yep, cool, got it, amazing, I'm loving this. And I was editing on the side for work. And then, oh, it must have been about 2009, I received an audition notice for The Wiggles and it was for a ballet dancing fairy. And I thought, oh, yeah, that that'll be right up my alley. I've got hair that looks like a fairy. Um, I can do ballet um, just enough to get through that audition and I think I'll um, go along. So proceeded with that audition and then that week I got a call back and I was accepted to be Fairy Larissa in a Dorothy the Dinosaur DVD and that's really where my wiggly journey had started. I I think I read that you were asked to sing in that audition. I was and I said no. <laughs> and every all the training leading up to that time, you know, was very much if you're in an audition, just say yes and then mm-hmm. learn it later. <laughs> and I think I auditioned for Disney about seven times and you'd basically do that audition twice or three times a year um, and I had a, tried a really good crack at it <laughs> um, but it was the the story was yep yeah, they're going to ask you if you can do aerial and you need to say yes uh, I, I think there was about six of us left at this one particular audition which I had done much better at <laughs> than in previous years and then the week later I ended up going to an aerial class <laughs> but never got a call back from Disney and so with the Wiggles, it was a little bit different in in that the audition notice was for ballet and it was for dance and it, it didn't have singing on it. It was only towards the end of the day when they asked for anyone to attempt the singing. Oh, God. And the dance was full on. Like it was a whole ballet. You had to mime and dance the whole way through. Even after the dance itself, I was puffed. I was like, this is incredibly <laughs> difficult. And I, I think There was probably about 30, 40 girls there and only four accepted the singing challenge. So you can see how difficult it was. Like normally on any audition, everyone would just say yes. Um, But this was extremely difficult. It was not a flattering moment for anyone. Like it could have been Ariana Grande singing there and it just wouldn't have helped. You know, it just was a really um, confronting Um, scenario but they did an amazing job out of the audition for that particular role I was just very fortunate to um, get the role of the fairy which was non-singing non-singing at the time of all the triple threat skills that sort of singing dancing acting combo if you haven't trained predominantly in singing I feel like that is the most frightening It's frightening as a dancer. Yeah, it's Mm. so frightening. And, you know, I went to full time with some incredibly talented people that had beautiful voices. If they could just work on their movement enough to get through that movement part of the audition, then they always got the role because their singing was so good. And most of my frustration before I auditioned for The Wiggles and auditioning for so many of those other musicals I would make it through the dance round and get to the singing panel and then go to sing and they, like numerous times, they would say I was undercooked. 
And I remember seeing this one lady and she was a musical director on the panel for many of those musicals. And I'd arrive and see her again. And she was like, have you been to singing lessons? And I was like, no, I'm so sorry. (laughs) She's like, well, I'm not going to put you through because you're undercooked. And I felt terrible. Yeah, it was bad. It was a bad time. <laughs> um, and I, yeah, it's, it's burnt in my memory, undercooked, undercooked. Yeah. But, and, it, and it doesn't really instill confidence going forward. I mean, you sing so much now with the Wiggles. How have you overcome uh, that? I, I, it was highly traumatic for me in the beginning mm. because it didn't feel like it was going to be a problem when I accepted it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> As in, I didn't think to myself, oh dear. I need to be the lead singer here. The fact that Lockie and Simon were both professionally trained singers, I was like, oh, easy, great. They're going to do all the singing. Yeah, Yeah, I'll just sing in the background a few la-la-las, try and keep in tune as best I can. And so really that's how it felt for me. And Lockie and Simon were so useful uh, when we were first starting out, helping me with learning harmonies and trying to work out parts that I would sing in original Wiggle songs that we were singing that weren't really written for for my register. So that was really the first two or three years was just trying to figure out how I was going to integrate my voice into the keys of the songs. So did you have to audition to become a Wiggle? Well... Not necessarily. I was with the company already, obviously performing as Fairy Larissa and doing other roles, but I guess perhaps the Wiggles and other people in the management team were probably watching me, but I wasn't really aware. I was touring with the company for about a year and a half before I was asked by Anthony at a show in Sydney, but it was just before the show's backstage in the dressing room. And he uh, pulled me aside. Yeah, it was very um, casual. (laughs) And because of its casual nature, I thought it was a joke because the boys are so used to playing pranks, you know, they're like brothers, so that, you know, it's always, you know, a bit of fun. And he said, you know, uh, we've got, you know, Murray and Greg and Jeff and they're thinking about retiring at the end of the year and we're, we're actually going to um, create a new lineup of the Wiggles. And I was like, oh, wow. And in my head, I was really sad because I'd only just joined. And I thought, oh, it's only been going for a year. You know, for me, I've, I feel like I've just, you know, got on board with the most amazing job ever. And, so you, you thought know, they were saying, so that's it, there's no yeah, more. Yeah. And I didn't, I didn't, I thought that it was kind of a wrap up of the whole, um, you know, the live show and everything, even though I knew, you know, this was only in about April. So of that year, which was 2012. And, you know, because he was saying that it was going to end up at the end of the year, I thought, okay, well, I'm, I've still got a couple more months of work. Um, and then he said, we're, you know, we're, we're getting a new lineup. We're thinking about, um, choosing Simon. And I was like, oh yeah, perfect. Because Simon had already been part of the company for a few years and he'd understudied the wiggles in the past. So I was like, yep, great idea. At that stage, I thought he was just chatting to me. He's like, we're thinking about choosing Lockie. And I was like, oh my goodness, because obviously Lockie and I, um, you know, were best friends still are obviously, but, um, Anthony was like, I was, I needed to tell you because I wanted you to come with me to tell him. And I was like, I'm not going to tell him it's your news. You know, he'll be, he'll be thrilled. He'll be stoked. And, you know, at that time, Lockie was so shy. So I thought, oh my gosh, how is he going to react? Like he's, I don't even know what he's going to do. And then Anthony said, but also I wanted to ask you if you wanted to be part of the new lineup as the first girl wiggle. And yeah, from that moment, I was just a bit shocked and I was like, oh, 
what, how, wow, what am I going to (laughs) do? Wow. And so it really seems to me that they know how to make it work in terms of a sense of family and that it's almost like if you can work together for many years like that, they already know that that lineup's going to work. And knowing each other is such a huge benefit because you're able to uh, know each other's energies and strengths as well. You know, we rely on each other as part of a group to, you know, get each other through each performance or each day for that manner. And even if a day doesn't involve the shows and whether it's just traveling, you know, you're all there together, uh, you know, on this journey, you know, as a group and as a family. So it is important for people to know each other and to support each other, particularly when you're traveling together, you know, performing and working and living essentially all at the same time. And you don't have to answer this, but I wanted to ask, you speak of the cast members with such warmth and in particular Lockie and, you know, not everyone could work with their ex-husband, but you guys seem to have such a genuine friendship. We do. And, you know, I'm so grateful that I've spent over the last decade with these people. You know, we see each other more than our families. We we know each other and and part of that spontaneity on stage really is us as a group working quite organically and spontaneously. And I think that's what um, the parents really loved about the original Wiggles group because they could see that for themselves. And so obviously you were the first female Wiggle How was that adjustment? Because obviously the four original members um, and then, you know, a couple of substitutes um, in there, but they'd been so successful. So how was it received when you became the first female Wiggle? I think initially um, there was obviously excitement and intrigue, uh, but over that first two years maybe, I did receive a lot of backlash because people felt like I was not an original member. (laughs) Um, And we would have lots of um, interviews which we would laugh at. And I'd be sitting there with Simon and Lockie and Andrew and they'd say to Simon and Lockie, you know, you guys have been there for so long. Um, What do you think about bringing this new member in? (laughs) And and Simon and Lockie would be thinking to themselves, oh, I'm so glad I look so young. (laughs) Because they started at the same time as you. The same time. (laughs) And we would have lots of interviews where people would assume that the boys were the same, even though they were totally different people. Um, And so initially there was just a little bit of backlash about being a wiggle as part of the group. But I think it was an overall like, oh, you're not you're not the original. And lots of different groups and bands over the years, you know, in lots of different other um, musical categories have had to deal with the same thing. Um, It's really about we had to prove to the audience that we weren't here to rewrite the history of the Wiggles, that we were here to contribute and to continue the music on. And so once that was accepted, everyone was fine with it. <laughs> it just took a few years and it was mainly teenagers that felt like their childhood was breaking up. Oh. <laughs> you know, they're like, you're not my childhood. But then we have become the Wiggles for our generation of children. So it continues to evolve. And I think that's what is beautiful about the brand. And it's what is beautiful about children's entertainment anyway. You know, children are evolving because they grow out of that phase and then they move, you know, from Emma Wiggle to Taylor Swift to Katy Perry. And then like, (laughs) you know, they're off. 
I, I wanted to ask a little bit about body image. And it's funny that what we've just talked about with that, just from the colours, they thought Lockie was an original member because he's wearing purple. <laughs> but I often think that about your costuming in that it is so clever because it's really about the colours and not the body shape. You'll, you've been noticed too with a lot of the original Wiggles um, productions and costuming. Most of the costumes are very modest. The focus was about people and their personalities and what they were singing or dancing to and it wasn't necessarily about showing off a physique. It's been really important um, for the for the productions and the content to be focused around joy <laughs> as opposed to something that's like a physical attribute. Um, and so, which is yeah, so the costume for children, yeah. which is so beautiful in that messaging. But it is confusing, I guess, because a lot of the backlash that I received was, oh, wow, you're way too girly, you're way too feminine, and why would you be wearing a skirt? And I think originally I was like, oh, no, I didn't mean to upset anyone. Yeah. I was very kindly asked what I wanted to wear <laughs> and my response was, a skirt, please. Um, I really want to wear a skirt. And because I was always wearing headbands in my hair, I, I had um, asked to wear a bow. <laughs> so <laughs> it, it definitely came from my own interpretation of what I felt comfortable in anyway as opposed to like a higher organisation saying you must wear this and be a female. And I guess it's about self-expression and I think one one of the things that's really important about our shows is that children are encouraged to come to the concerts dressed however they feel comfortable. We would never dictate what they must dress as because children are so expressive and open-minded. They might be wearing an L a dress with an Emma bow and that yes. is totally fine. <laughs> like that is how they want to dress. We have lots of boys coming to the show dressed not just in the Emma bow but in the full Emma outfit and that is cool. Like and it's come so dress good. however you want. Yeah, we're not fussed but it is interesting over the years um, we've had so many interesting uh, perspectives from people, not just journalists but parents as well. We had a particular boy come to the show and he brought a sign and it said boys can be Emma too and I I didn't think that, like, we brought it up to the stage and everyone clapped, you know, along with all the other signs that we had. And then at lunchtime I said to Lockie, hey, can you put a bow on and can I take a picture of you? Put it up on social media. And people went crazy and they were not happy that we were encouraging um, boys to dress as Emma or a girl per se. And then a year later when we brought out Emma costumes <laughs> everyone was like why can't why won't you photograph a boy in the costume like it just the way wow. that um the perception of uh dress-ups and gender has changed over mm. the last couple of years is extraordinary I mean I, I I did think a few years ago I wanted to line up a few of these um media articles that were just so contradictory <laughs> to each other within the space of a couple of months. Like it was, you know, that they didn't want us to do it, then they did want us to do it. And then I was like, wow, you just cannot win. No. But essentially it, we weren't making any kind of statement and the Wiggles never do. You know, the whole point of the show and the music and the dress-ups is that children can just choose whatever they want to be dressed up as and hence why my costume 
is a true expression of me. (laughs) If anybody knows me as me, like I don't own a pair of jeans. I've been photographed once in an editorial in jeans (laughs) and I still can't even look at the picture and think of it (laughs) as me. (laughs) It's just not very me. Um, I just love wearing dresses and skirts. The other thing I suppose connected to body image and you were just so beautifully open with your diagnosis of endometriosis, Um, I think back in 2018 now, you know, from what I know of endometriosis, you can have terrible, you know, cramping and bleeding and that's tough on anyone, let alone someone who has to get up and put on costumes and, and, you know, you know, bring a really energetic and, you know, positive role on stage every day. I was really lucky thinking back that I made sure my costume had black stockings, (laughs) I'll be honest, as a woman. I I didn't think about it, Mm. obviously, but it it made sense. But I, at the time of the diagnosis, because it was severe and I had to make the decision to have surgery very quickly, it just seemed really appropriate that I would have to explain it sincerely and properly to the audience, not just the children, but the parents as well. And so it really changed everything for me, essentially, because I knew that I was in pain, but I didn't really worry about it. But I didn't know how bad it was. I didn't so was realize it your, what was, going was it on. your normal? Is that is that sort of Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I didn't know. I just thought that this was like female problems constantly. And I must have honestly in retrospect, I think I'd been having that kind of pain since I was about 14. <laughs> so who knows? I, I, you know, I don't know any better. So that just just becomes your way of life. Yeah. Yeah. It did become progressively worse. And it was only when it got so bad that I was like, oh, maybe there's something wrong. <laughs> uh, that's when I, you know, had many, many tests and I tried to see as many different people as I could because I couldn't quite understand Um, how something could be so severe and me not understand it or know that it was happening to me. I think there was a sense of denial. I was like, how did I let myself ignore that (laughs) for such a long time or not think Mm. it was severe? And so actually being able to explain to people that I wasn't going to be on the show because I was about to have a surgery and I had endo um, was important because at the time people thought that I was pregnant and it was so far away from that perspective and that's why I felt that I had to explain it because the pressure on me at that time to be pregnant was quite a lot and so I was like oh no (laughs) and if you disappear for six weeks exactly people be like oh okay I see what's happening here she's pregnant and I and I I think I was so upset and I was in so much pain with the endo I don't think I could have handled personally being able to explain myself um, that I wasn't pregnant or listen to that for, you know, for six weeks. And also that constant speculation when, as you say, you know, not everybody has fertility issues with endometriosis, but it's a possibility. So that dichotomy of that being then possibly reported. I had one moment in particular during the show, we would go out into the audience and collect the craft that children would bring to the show. So whether that was signs for the Wiggles or bones for Wags a Dog or roses for Dorothy or bows or whatever. And I was going out to collect something and uh, one of the mothers, she grabbed my arm and she's like, when are you, when are you due? (laughs) And I I think it just caught me by such surprise. I didn't even know what she said to me. I was like, sorry, what? (laughs) 
She's like, when are you, when are you, you're, you're pregnant, right? And I'm oh looking gosh. down at my costume thinking to myself, do I, hang on, do I look, wait, do I look pregnant or do people think I'm pregnant? And it got, it got so Oh, Emma, that is ingrained. just absolutely horrendous. Well, I even oh. had my mum call me. My mum, my mum called me and she goes, are you pregnant? I'm like, what? And I'm like, no. She goes, oh, okay. Because everyone had been reporting about it in media and oh. then people had um, messaged my mum saying congratulations no. and then mum called me and she's like, why wouldn't you tell me? I was like, I would and I'm not pregnant. <laughs> I mean, now, you know, five, de- mm. five years down the track, That's obviously right. I'm not pregnant. <laughs> Still not. Um, so, you know, endo lives on. But even within the last five years, the perception to uh, talk about fertility issues and endometriosis alongside it um, are particularly sensitive and it's a whole different conversation. And it, I am not asked the question as much about if I'm pregnant or not. Um, but definitely, <laughs> well, I mean, before I spoke about endometriosis, I was asked quite often or probably maybe four times a week. No. And I haven't drunk for for many, many years. And I would always order tea when I'd go out to a restaurant. And so many times people would be like, are you pregnant? Yeah. And I, and she's I not having a wine, still, so. yeah. Oh, she's not, she's not drinking. Oh, she must be pregnant. But isn't it interesting how much that conversation has moved even in three years? Yeah, because that's right. People wouldn't even dream of asking that no. question now. No, and no. the consideration that people might be having issues with fertility is it's just in the consciousness now it's so prevalent it I is mean it's sad so prevalent. it's sad it opens mm. up another discussion about you know the world and our environment and not just you know our natural environment but our work environment and stress and anxiety and and the rate of infertility yeah everything mm. I mean it's just huge um, how much of the decline um, is for fertility in women now more so than ever before and I think to have the conversation though and the discussion is really important if we don't talk about it it's kind of worse um, and yeah you're right though there's I think almost every woman and every person for that fact is dealing with their own sense of um, health issues or struggles that might relate to health. And so, you know, everyone's dealing with something for sure. Mm. And so isn't that interesting that at the time where you told everyone it was Mm. to shut down pregnancy rumours, but in actual fact, it promoted a conversation that wasn't there at the time. Yeah, and hopefully, and I I do have such an overwhelming response from talking about endo, which I didn't even imagine, but definitely since that day, and I remember I think I was, I think I was at Channel 9 and I had a beautiful interview and it was scary for me. I don't think I could watch it back now, Um, but I was really worried. I was so nervous to talk about the reason why I wasn't going to be on the show for a period of time um, and on the tour. But uh, since then, pretty much daily, I receive messages from mothers uh, sharing their stories and mostly in support. They're like, don't even worry about it. I, I had endo and now I have two beautiful children. And so, Aww. you know, they're actually, they're being supportive and positive. It's it. And, and some people, you know, do talk about their, their experience with infertility, but mostly it's about women saying to me, you know, you don't, don't rule anything out. <laughs> <laughs> but doesn't that show sweet. the warmth with which you're received? Not 
just by children, but by the parents. It's just it's very sweet. It's it's I'm I feel more supported than I ever have in this kind of public light, um, which I never imagined. Mm. Before we finish, I wanted to ask you about your PhD. Yeah. <laughs> First of all, congratulations. What what are you researching? Oh, I'm so excited that you asked. It's like you know, I feel like I'm researching away in the dark in a dark corner <laughs> in my spare time. I think um, PhDs are long, lonely roads sometimes. You're absolutely right in the fact that you're not in like a classroom with other people, but self-driven learning for me is just excellent. I absolutely <laughs> because I don't agree. really have I'm time to go to class. Well. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I I am I truly love um being able to read and discover and synthesize things on my own for long periods of time. Mm. Um, I'm doing my PhD at Macquarie University to study and be supervised by actually one of my idols in dance filmmaking, who is Karen Perlman. Um, I was actually researching her work. Oh, yeah, so, And then I found her. She wasn't actually teaching. Like she's a dance filmmaker and she's written a book about editing for dancers, like editing dance, and I was researching her book. And then somebody was like, did you know she's teaching at Macquarie? And I was like, what? <laughs> and so I got really lucky. Yeah. Wow. So she's your PhD supervisor. Yes. Yes, what? like the person that I was researching, the one, the one person in your PhD that you're trying to contribute more knowledge to or like, you know, learn from, <laughs> she's my supervisor. So lucky. So you're sort of referencing papers with her name. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I'm like my supervisor and this person, Professor Dr. Karen Perlman. This is her chapter, by the way. She's my supervisor. <laughs> and so um, what are you sorry, hoping to... I, I'll go back. I'll go back. Yeah, sorry, yeah. Sorry, I, I cut in. I got on such well. a tangent. No, I'm studying... I am studying um, a PhD on creative and effective integrations of visual movement. So whether that's dance, gesture, mime, sign language on screen and using film editing techniques, that was a very long-winded approach to say that and I'd be in trouble by my supervisor for not being clear. (laughs) But it is creative integrations of sign language, dance and film editing. And that is so to promote greater interpretation or greater understanding for the for the audience definitely a greater knowledge yes i think we're in a position where we have a little bit of a lack of understanding on how important visual communication is for everyone but not just for uh people that might not be able to hear an auditory stimulus like music or a narration or a voiceover or an interview for that manner. Lots of people are actually learn or take in information visually. And so it's about how can we enhance whatever we're showing on screen to indicate to an audience uh, what's going on or what the meaning is without having to rely on an auditory source. Mm, Incredible. Because now not just people who are hearing impaired, but, you know, anybody who is on the autism spectrum, Asperger's, and even people who just, you know, not everybody wants to be in a huge crowd. How incredible. The conversation and the discussion of my research has changed over many, many years now researching this particular project for a number of years and and me acknowledging my weakness in my perspective approaching this research subject as what somebody. Do you mean? 
Oh, well, I have to recognise that I'm a hearing person that is researching about the deaf community and it is really important to note that I don't have a deaf experience. That's not my primary source. And so it's about how can I as a hearing person and perhaps other hearing people contribute positively to visual communication that can also be useful and inclusive or more inclusive for those that are part of our deaf community here in Australia and hopefully around the world. It'll be a life goal to try and have Auslan as part of the school curriculum. I think that's something that after this PhD, that will be something that I will be definitely trying to support. I know there's a lot of people advocating for that right now, Um, but really it is about being able to offer a communication system to those who cannot hear uh, so that they're able to communicate with other people and being able to offer a language to those people is really, 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 really important. And they, again, they might not be deaf. They might be, you know, children on the spectrum, might even be adults. You know, I think there's been such a shun away from learning Auslan in a particular time period that we're actually finding now there's a huge sector of um, young adults and, and you know, older adults as well um, that actually never were given the opportunity to learn to sign because there was no education oh, about bilingual education back then. Yeah. So you're saying that sort of if you don't learn it as a child, there's been a sense that, well, you can't really learn this as a teenager or an adult. Oh, there's a huge gap. So there's there was basically a section in about the 80s, 90s where it was like, no, actually it's better for everyone to be in a mainstream. It's better oh, to not I learn see. to sign if you can't hear. And so a lot of friends that I have in the deaf community might be 50, 60, and they only learn sign language at the age of 30 because their family or their parents or their school or their education, they didn't even know about sign language or they didn't think that it was appropriate. So it's a, it's a highly contentious discussion. <laughs> um, but basically it's not about right or wrong. It's not about cochlear or hearing aid. It's not about sign language and no English. It's not about English and no sign language. It's really just about providing children as early as possible, different communication options so that they can find out what works best for them in their world and for us as hearing privilege to be able to at least start to learn sign language sign language on a broader sense. Imagine if everybody actually knew how to sign, like how are you, are you in an emergency? Like that's what I think. If somebody was, you know, hit by a bus, goodness That's help incredible. us you know and what if that person you know couldn't talk and then you're saying can you make a sound can you hear me make a sound <laughs> how how are they even going to know that even if everyone knew how to sign how are you are you okay are you hurt <laughs> do you want me to call for help that's probably what I think about every day, <laughs> even though my, my research project is not about that but I just think there is really a lack of understanding um in our society as a whole about you know even having safety measures as as inclusive. It made me really teary when you said that about the emergency. Um, oh, I just I feel think I about used, it. Yeah, I actually used to live with a girl in London when we I just was flat sharing, and she was deaf. And when I moved into the share house, she came into my room one night and she could speak, and she just said to me, oh, "If the fire alarm goes off in the night, could you mm. come and wake me up?" 
Honestly. And I, honestly. I actually, I didn't even understand what she was asking at first. And I thought, oh my goodness, if she goes to sleep in the night yep. and yep. something happens and there's a fire in the kitchen, mm. the fire alarm would be going off and she would not know. And that it is, yeah, there's amazing technologies that uh, some people have installed in their house. So the fire alarm or the doorbell or the telephone is a light or it's a vibration plate under the pillow or whatever. And look, that is amazing. But you're right. Like what are we doing to help? I would say nothing. (laughs) And the funny thing is we live in a a dodgy flat in London. Like there was definitely no technology. (laughs) So, you know. Exactly. It just shows. Anyway, look, Emma, thank you so much. Sorry, that was such a tangent. Yeah, such a tangent. I'm really interested (laughs) in and what a platform you have to be able to um, educate, you know, children who can hear about their, you know, who will be their colleagues through life that we just have more communication. It's what what could be a negative about that? Nothing. Emma, thank you so much. Thank I'm you. just so excited to watch what you do next. You'll be Dr. Wiggle soon. And oh, um... it's gonna take me a while. <laughs> <laughs> Emma continues to write, produce, edit, and perform with the Wiggles. All the while continuing with her PhD, fostering her Auslan knowledge and working to promote greater awareness around endometriosis. To continue to follow all of Emma's adventures, you can find her on Insta at Emma underscore Wiggle or on her personal account at Emma Watkins Official. Emma and I recorded remotely, with Emma dialing in from Sydney on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, to which we pay our greatest respects. On the next episode, you'll hear from Frances Rings. People probably think, oh, yeah, Fran would have got in really easy and, you know, she wouldn't have had to audition. Stephen gave me the hardest time. Like, I actually had to work my ass off to to get into the company. Your host and producer is me, Claudia Lawson. Additional production by Penelope Ford. With editing and sound production by Martin Peralta. And for the latest in all things dance, head to fjordreview.com.